I want to start off this morning by reading something, and I'm going to see if you can identify where it came from, okay? See if you can pick out the source of this. It reads like this, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another, anybody know where that's from? The Declaration of Independence. It's the introduction to the Declaration of Independence, which of course, as we know, was adopted by Congress in July of 1776. The notion of independence is just absolutely the foundation of American culture and thinking, right? We love our freedom. We love our independence. We absolutely hate when anyone tells us what to do. But independence is not simply an American thing. And actually, I would argue that 1776 was not the first declaration of independence. In fact, it actually would have taken place thousands of years ago by our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they made their own declaration of independence When they looked at their Creator, the one who had formed them and given them life and everything that they needed, and they said to Him, essentially, we would like to dissolve the bonds that have connected us with one another. In other words, we will choose what's right and what is wrong. We will be our own gods. We don't need you. And ever since then, humanity has been foolishly seeking out independence from the very source of life. But independence can be a good thing, right? We can all think of examples where, uh, depending on what you're trying to be independent of or in, that can be a very good thing. Probably the easiest place for us to see independence and to really connect with that is our growing up. Or if you have kids, raising kids. Your goal is to create independent humans. There are so many things that I have no interest in doing for my kids when they're teenagers. I do not want to help them in the bathroom I do not want to help them brush their teeth or change their clothes. There's a whole list of things. And when they become adults, the list gets even longer, and at the top of that list is pay their bills, right? I have no interest in creating dependent humans for the rest of their lives. But it all depends on what we're trying to become independent of. Because to take that notion of independence and to place that on what we think that's what God wants of us in our relationship with Him what actually heads us in the exact opposite direction. See, God does not want us to move from a place of, towards the direction of independence in Him, in anything. There's not a single area of life where God is hoping that you become more independent of. When it comes to growing spiritually, we do that in greater dependence on Him. When it comes to fighting addictions or compulsions or sinful desires that you have, that's not a white-knuckled discipline, I can do this by myself. But those all take place in greater degrees of dependence, persevering under suffering, facing your fears and our insecurities and our anxieties, to to even love those who are in our family or our neighbors or even our enemies. We, We can't do that independent of Him. When it comes to sharing the gospel with our neighbors and coworkers by our works, by our actions, and by our words. Every bit of what our life is with God is intended to actually move from a degree of independence into greater dependence on Him every moment of every day. And what you hear in today's passage is just that. Because at the heart of the passage is not a declaration of independence, but it's a declaration of total dependence on God. And that's where we're heading this morning. This morning we're going to meet one of my heroes I, I, don't know who, I don't know who your kind of heroes are in the Bible. And yes, I know the answer is always Jesus. He is the hero of all Scripture. 
The whole, all the scripture points to him. It culminates to him. He is the centerpiece of scripture. But along the way in the journey, there's probably someone that you connect with. And maybe you're thinking David, who's described as a man after God's own heart. And that's just what you want to be known as. Or there's Ruth, who is this beautiful example of faithful covenant love. Joshua, strong and courageous. Or whatever your kind of hero is in Scripture. Mine is in this passage. And I don't even know his name. We don't even know his name. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. And while you're turning there, I want to just remind us of where we've been. See, the first half of Mark's gospel, which we studied this last fall, was all about revealing the power and the compassion of Jesus. His authority is clear in every area of life. He's authoritative in how he teaches and how he handles the Scripture. He's authoritative over sickness and and all of creation, even the storms. The demons respond to his word in total obedience and submission. And even death itself He goes over to a little girl and he raises her from the dead as if he's waking his daughter up from a nap. And Jesus takes that authority and he uses it to care for those who are on the outside, those who are the the low of lows. The compassion and authority of Jesus meet perfectly. And last week we came to a really important part in the life and story of Jesus is that he begins to show us the way that the kingdom of God is going to be revealed most fully. What, he shows us what kind of king he is. And he doesn't come and he doesn't rule in the way that you might expect, but he comes with a different purpose, and his purpose is actually to die. And he begins to reveal that. We saw this last week to his disciples. And he says, my purpose was to come and to suffer, but I will be raised again. He came to actually redeem his people and to give us freedom from the greatest enemy, which is our own sin and our own rebellion. And to follow Jesus means that we follow him into that death, trusting that on the other side of death is resurrection. In Mark 9, Jesus gives a little glimpse, a little experience to all, well, not all actually, just three of his disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain and gives them a little glimpse of what his glory is. He shows himself. He's transfigured in front of them. And so that he begins, they they get a little taste of what that resurrection life would be like. And as those three disciples and Jesus come down off the mountain, they enter into a really complicated situation, which is our passage today. You're going to hear some themes come up over and over again in this. And John, uh, I'm sorry, Mark just kind of takes these themes and kind of mixes them together because they're all so related. We're going to see the issue of power, of strength both the lack of and the one who has true ultimate power. And we're going to see that that, the key to that power being experienced in one's life is actually the issue of faith. What does it mean to have faith? Well, we're going to talk also about the issue of dependence. That at the heart of faith is just total, unconditional dependence on the one who has ultimate power. And all of these themes kind of come together and are experienced and expressed in prayer. And that's where we're going to head this morning. Mark chapter 9, let's just read the first four verses again, starting in verse 14. Actually, we'll go 14 to 18. And when they, this is Peter, James, John, and Jesus, came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. 
As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And the source of this commotion, this this issue that Jesus walks into where he sees the religious leaders and the crowd arguing with the disciples, what's going on here? Well, this father chimes in. This father says, I brought you my son. I came to find you and you weren't here because he was up on the mountain. So he went to Jesus' disciples, the other nine, hoping that they, who actually a few chapters before in Mark chapter 6, were given the authority by Jesus to go out and to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And so they did that. And they came back excited because they were given the authority and even the demons responded to them in Jesus' authority. The problem is that whenever Jesus' disciples are separated from him, most of the times it ends up in a mess. And that's what we find here, is that Jesus, not being with his disciples, his disciples are unable. They're unable to help this man. So the father brings his son, who since childhood, we learn in verse 21, has been possessed by this impure spirit who's made him mute and deaf, and he's not been able to, to, to function, really. And I just want you to try and touch, touch, you know, kind of connect with the emotional state that this father must have been in. If you were a parent in this room, you just try to imagine the helplessness. Even if you're not a parent, can you picture the bags under this guy's eyes? Because this demon tries to take his son and tries to throw him into the fire and throw him into the water. It's like the, he's never safe. How exhausting this must have been. Can you imagine the lengths that this father would have gone to to try to heal and find help for his son? And yet it's clear that he's been unable to find help and he's been unable to help himself or he wouldn't be here. And so he comes in hope. I've heard about this Jesus. Maybe he can help. And he comes and Jesus isn't there, so he goes to his disciples. And his disciples are unable. Even the guys following him aren't able to do this. He's outmatched and he's desperate. He's weary. Because he's outmatched by this impure spirit, by this demon. I mean, just take a minute to think about that piece for a second. Because we live in a culture, in a society where we don't know what to do with that. It's so easy when it comes to, to, to demons and spirits to just take it and say, yeah, well, we figured out the real answer. This guy doesn't have a demon. He really has epilepsy. It fits all the, it fits all the signs. This isn't it. What, what, what do we do with this passage? Is that, is that what we're supposed to do, is just see this as, as primitive, and now we've advanced beyond that? No. No, we are actually just very uncomfortable with the reality that there is a world around us that we cannot see, that spirits are very real. This isn't just some old way of thinking about things. It's also tempting to go the opposite direction and to make it too extreme to where now we look at it and we go, oh, so what you're saying to me is that every physical or mental disability or every diagnosis is just a demon. Well, that's probably the opposite extreme, and that's not helpful. 
C.S. Lewis, in a a book called The Screwtape Letters, which if you've not read it, I do encourage it, it really helps us to kind of creatively think about the ways that the demon, that, that the spiritual world interacts and tries to oppress Although it cannot, a demon cannot uh, possess a believer, it can oppress them. And it tries to help us think about ways that, that might, you might experience that in really subtle ways. And he says there's two unhelpful ways that we can think about demons. And one is what is typical of us in the West, which is to just dismiss anything that we can't see. We live in such a rational, scientific world that, if we, that, that, that we just find an explanation for everything. And we don't know how to leave something in a mystery. But the Scripture teaches that there are spirits that we cannot see that interact in, 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 in some way. How, how does that look? I don't know. The other unhelpful response is to go in and attribute every single problem to a demon. The sound system glitches. Well, we joke there's a demon in the sound system, right? Not every single thing is attributed to that, but it's foolish of us to act as if it's not real. How do, we, how do we understand those two? What, what do we do with those, those realities that we can't understand? I don't have an answer for that. We don't know. This is a mystery. But both are true. Both are true. In fact, Charles is a French poet named Charles Bolader. Bolader. Let's just pretend I said that right. Um, <laughs> my French is apparently non-existent. He said, the loveliest trick of the devil devil is to persuade you that he does not exist. And then the 1995 movie, The Usual Suspects, picks up on that and and uses that quote as well. I know this is very true because the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us that our primary struggle is actually not against flesh and blood, but is against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in this heavenly place. So while our enemy is cunning, he has schemes and he has multiple schemes and possession is one of those schemes. It's by far not his only scheme. So if we want to be naive enough to think that there is not spiritual oppression that takes place in your hidden sins and addictions and compulsions, we're we're fooling ourselves to think that there is not a spiritual oppression taking place in those. One of his greatest weapons in our culture is shame. You don't think that's a spiritual issue? You don't think that our discontentment is not first and foremost about your house or your car, but, about a, a, but it's a spiritual issue. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But our battle is against the principalities of evil that wants to oppress us. It's real. And it's way too big for us because you can't even see it. How do you fight an enemy that you don't even see? How do you fight an enemy that is so cunning and so deceptive that we just think it's called marketing when really it's targeting your discontentment? When we just think it's entertainment, but it's really just a medicine to lull us to sleep and keep us distracted from the issues of life that really matter. How do we fight an enemy that is far greater than we are? When left to our own strength, we cannot defeat him. This is exactly where the disciples are at. The Father says, 
Jesus, I asked your disciples if they could help, but they could not. This is the same word. They could not. They were not strong enough. They did not have the personal resources to. We see that we've actually seen this word a lot through our study. One of the most interesting places you've seen this word is, do you remember the man who was possessed by a bunch of spirits? And he lived among the tombs. And it said that he was so strong that no one was able to, no one had the strength to subdue him and chain him. No one could overpower him. It's the same thing we have here. The disciples were unable, they did not have the strength or the personal resources to subdue this spirit. And I don't know if you can just take a moment to connect with that. Where are you in life that you feel absolutely outmatched? Where are you overwhelmed? What is it for you that you are personally battling in your own life some compulsion, some sinful desire that seems so unbelievably strong in your life that you're absolutely outmatched and the only thing you can say is, I can't. No matter what I do, it just seems to continue to have a stronghold in my life. Where is that anger? Where is that bitterness? Where is that apathy that you're just overwhelmed and you just have, you're powerless, it feels, against it? What is that, that, that amount of suffering that you're experiencing that no matter what you try, there is no fixing it? It might be a diagnosis, something that you, you can't just do the right thing and, and heal your body, or maybe it's your mind, maybe it's your emotions, maybe there's these fears and these insecurities and anxieties that leave you feeling crippled all the time, and the only thing you've got is, I, I'm, I can't, it's too strong. Who is that person? That's really hard to love. That you just don't have it in you. Where does it look like the strongholds of darkness are so strong that that person will never come to Jesus? You've been praying, you've been sharing, you've tried your whole life to model the gospel, to share the gospel. It just feels like that stronghold is too strong. If you have places, I'm just going to put that in the plural because I just know every one of us does, where those are is where you connect in with this story. This is where this story is real. Because you're facing the exact same battle that the disciples faced, that this father faced. And the question is, what do you do when you face those types of things? Because I know the temptation for me is to distract myself, to to kind of medicate something. It doesn't actually deal with it. I just want to ignore it. Or maybe you just muscle up really hard and try really hard to fix whatever you've got, and then you slip and fall again. What do you do when you're faced with something that is far too strong for you? I am so thankful for the example that Scripture has given to us of this man. Because this father, who is nameless, is absolutely my hero in the Bible. He's presented to us as a positive example of faith and what that looks like. So let's keep reading. 
I think I left it in verse... Uh, I don't know. I think I, left, I think I read 19. You, yeah, I did. So verse 20. Verse 20. So they brought him, the boy that is. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw, threw the boy into a convulsion. And he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. If you can do anything, Jesus, I've tried. I'm sure he's gone to other physicians. They've tried. I came to your disciples. They tried. But if you can do anything, Jesus, if you have the personal resources, if you have the strength to overcome this thing that stands against me, then help us. Have compassion on us. And Jesus' response is, if I can, if I can, let's not make this a question about my ability, but let's make this a question about you. Everything's possible for me. Everything's possible for the one who believes. Do you believe that I can? Don't make this about my problem. Divine ability is not the issue at stake here. The problem is human unbelief. Do you actually believe that I can? Because anything's possible with God. What I'm looking for is faith, which is why I love this Father's answer. Do you see the little, it's so little, but he says, the father cried out. That's like a blah, blurts out. It just blah, bubbles out of my, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I have faith, but I have doubts. I need your power. I need your strength in my life. I cannot. And I'm coming to you. You want faith? I don't even have that. The best I've got is weak faith, and it's pathetic as it is. And our sufferings and our circumstances in life do that, don't they? They shake what weak faith we have, and we leave it so that it's like, feels like absolutely nothing. Everything is possible for the one who believes. We have to be really careful with this verse. This is not one of those verses you rip out and stick on a sign and hang it in your living room, okay? This is not like anything I want to do, anything I want to be. I can be and do those things if I just believe enough. See, the goal, this is not a blank check that's used as a way of manipulating God to getting your way. That's not faith. The goal of this text is not to show that somehow if you just believe enough that you can create and make everything happen that you want to happen in your life. That actually puts you in the position of God and God is your servant. The reason that you're sick is not that you don't trust enough. There's a, there's a, a branch of what you might call Christianity. I think it's a little generous to call it that. 
who will tell you that if the reason everything is not going perfect in your life is you just don't believe enough. Can I tell you how grateful I am that God's concern is more about the object of your faith than the strength of your faith? I don't know how you feel when you go across the bridges going into New Jersey from Philadelphia. I hate them. They terrify the life out of me. I'm driving in a vehicle over nothing. And it's over a whole lot of water that I do not want to fall into. And while I'm driving, this is sick, I know. I like run scenarios. If the bridge collapses, what will I do? Like I just am so petrified as I go over these high bridges over water. It's actually a little embarrassing. But do you know what I'm really glad? That the, the strength of my faith does not determine whether I will make it to the other side or not. The object of my faith is what matters. And what's so beautiful about this passage is this father comes, weak, busted up faith. He is worn down. He feels like he has been in a grinder for so long. And his faith is hanging on by a thread, if you even want to call it faith. But do you know what he does? He comes to Jesus. Do you know what faith is? Coming to Jesus. Empty-handed. Surrender. Helpless. Dependent. Jesus, I got nowhere else to go. I don't have it in me. Y'all don't have it in you. Jesus, I'm coming to you. I'm looking to you. My faith is weak, but I'm coming to you. It's open-handed surrender that says, Lord, whatever you want in life, I'm going to trust you. It reminds me of, of, of three men in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three Hebrew men who were, who were faced with a choice by a pagan king, and their options were this. Bow down and worship a false god, and you will live. Refuse, and I will throw you into an oven, and I will kill you. Those are your options. And their answer is this. King, if we are thrown into the firing blaze, the blazing furnace, the fire, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your hand. I'm not in your hand, King. I belong to him. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will never serve your gods. Even if he does not. Here's the reality for us. There are things that you are facing in your life that the Lord's answer may be, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to be with you. My grace is enough for you in this moment as you walk this journey. But there will be a day, as we sang earlier, where death will be no more. Where the things that you face in this life will not have final word. Your sin and your suffering have an expiration date. These things will end. You will be delivered from them if you belong to Jesus. But in the meanwhile, that answer may be not right now. Faith is not manipulating God 
to getting your way right now, faith comes to Jesus with open hands and says, I trust you, your way, not my will, but your will. Does that sound familiar? Because the one in this story who looks out at the whole group and says, you unbelieving generation, is the only one who fully believes. He's the only one who lives with perfect faith. Who the night before he was crucified, Jesus is in the garden saying, I know the path you have for me, Father. Is there any way around this? But not what I want, but what you want. That is faith. That is what God is asking us for. And the beautiful thing is he comes and he doesn't demand perfect faith. Sometimes it's simply a looking with your eyes to Jesus and that's all you got. The disciples were unable and actually in the very end they come to Jesus and they say, what happened? Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we drive him out? Did you catch Jesus' answer? You almost expect him to say, it's because you didn't believe enough. But he says, this kind can only come out by prayer. You're like, what does that mean? Does it mean they just should have stopped and, okay, let's bow our heads and close? Is it some routine they didn't do? They miss a step in the exorcism process here? No, because prayer is the voice of faith. Prayer gives voice to your faith, directing it towards God. It's an acknowledgement of my inability. It's denying your self-sufficiency. Because if you think you got it, you don't need to ask anyone for help. I got it. But prayer is a declaration of dependence. God, I cannot. God, I'm looking to you. If you don't come through in this moment, there is no hope. It's got to come from you. It says that the spiritual power of darkness that's both inside of us and outside of us to overcome that is not found within you. You cannot dig deep to figure that out. It's a cry of help from the outside. And the importance of coming to Jesus is so important because as try as hard as you want, you will not find the deliverance at the bottom of the bottle. There is no loved one who can hold you close enough to fix all the problems. No no experience, no sex, no food. As good as Chick-fil-A french fries are, they are not good enough and there is not enough of them in this world. Whatever your comfort food is, there isn't, that's mine, um, there (laughs) there is not enough comfort in them for your soul. Watching movies, shows, reading books are simply an escape from our world to which you must re-enter which is why the rest of the story is so beautiful because God demonstrates, Jesus demonstrates his power over the things that were so powerful against this man and the disciples. The things that they did not have personal resources to do, Jesus says, I do. And he commands the demon to leave, and he does. This passage is an invitation to stop pretending that you've got it. This this invitation says, use these words when you talk to me. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I'm looking to you. I bring myself, the mess that I am, the weakness, the, the, the pathetic faith that I have. 
but I'm bringing it to you. Will you help me? Will you have compassion on me? Will you take pity on me and help me? Because apart from you, I can do nothing. So what does it look like to grow in dependence on Jesus? Well, it means you're going to pray that prayer a lot. It means you're going to come to him and pray a simple prayer of faith on a regular basis when you find yourself against that thing in your life. Lord, I believe your ways are right. I believe you want what's best. Help my unbelief. Because I may think in my head that I want something, but my life can betray and show me what I'm actually putting my active faith in. There's a theoretical faith that we have sometimes, and then there's an actual faith where we tend to trust things that aren't strong enough to actually bring the deliverance that we'd hoped. But it's reorienting ourselves over and over again to that. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I want to encourage you to try something else that might help you in this. I want to invite you to fast. Fasting is a little strange for us because we don't know what to do with that. I don't know that probably the majority of us have not actually fasted from something in our lives. Fasting is a way of developing a taste for Jesus, you could say. Fasting is abstaining intentionally from food or some activity or something as a means of reminding yourself that man does not live on bread alone, but my actual dependence is on God. He is what I need. And so you, for a period of time, you choose to say no to something that is good as a way to say, God, when I feel that desire, when I feel that urge, when I feel that, oh, I want that, that craving for a good thing, I say no to that for a period, not just for the sake of saying no, but for the sake of reorienting myself towards God. God, you are the one that I need. I am dependent on you. It's an opportunity for prayer. It's an opportunity to practice and to grow in that faith. Bill mentioned earlier that on Ash Wednesday, we have, on February 22nd, we have a, an evening service designed to, to help us remember our humanity, that we were formed from dust and we will return to dust. But Ash Wednesday in the church calendar actually kicks off a period that's known as Lent. And Lent is just a time of fasting, except on Sundays. Monday through Saturday, you abstain from something as a reminder, as a way of growing in this dependence, of acknowledging our dependence on the Lord. And if the idea of Lent as a term bothers you for any reason, don't call it Lent. Call it fasting. That's okay. Jesus maybe doesn't command it, but he actually assumes his followers will fast. He tells them, when you fast, do this. So that when you feel that craving, when you get that caffeine headache for maybe no coffee, or when you reach for your pocket for your phone, when you really don't need your phone and you've decided to put it aside, those moments are moments to acknowledge, to be reoriented back, to make a declaration in that moment of your dependence on God. That Jesus, without you, I can do nothing. The end of this story has a beautiful hope for us. Jesus commands the evil spirit, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26 says that the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Verse 27, if you translate it super literal in a way that really doesn't make sense, says this. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he was resurrected. That doesn't really translate into normal English. That's why the translators put it the way they did. But do you see what this is doing? This is giving you a taste. This is giving you a hint as to the hope that we have. The hope that we have is found in another resurrection. The one where Jesus, the Son of Man, who came to destroy the work of the devil, who came to destroy the forces of of darkness that oppress us, How does he do that? Well, the one who obeyed perfectly, who had perfect faith in his Father, who had the power, willingly allowed himself to be overrun by the forces of darkness so that on the third day he might rise again in victory. So that those who would look to Jesus in faith, feeling the neediness, the emptiness of their soul, are not lost in hopeless despair. But by faith, you're united with Jesus, which means that when Jesus is raised from the dead, it's a guarantee that you will one day be raised to experience a new body where suffering and sin cannot touch them. That is our hope. That is the promise of God. And how do we receive that? You receive it by simple childlike faith that says, Jesus, I know I've come to the end of myself. I know I've got nothing, but I'm looking to you because you have the power and you have compassion on us and you have come to help. I believe you, Lord. Help my unbelief. And that's not just the cry to enter into that relationship with him. That's the cry every step of the way. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. Father, we make that declaration this morning. We believe that life is found nowhere else other than you. And yet our faith is weak. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help our unbelief in the specific circumstances that each one of us are facing. Help us to believe that you are stronger than those things and that when we come to the end of ourselves and we look to you with open hands, that you delight in that. Lord, it's so hard for us because if we feel needy inside, we feel like that's a burden to other people. And we feel like you're just going to get tired of us like other people in life do with our neediness. But not you. You delight in your children coming to you and showing, hey, we need you, Father. That brings joy to you. And so we come to you and surrender, asking you to meet us, to change us, to make us like you. Father, help us. Our faith is weak, but we look to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.